Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There once was a time when we were, if not united, at least we had a common set of cultural touchstones. Movies, TV, sports, even the three networks that delivered the evening news were part of a national town square that provided both water cooler conversation and comedy. No more. Over the past 40 years, all that has changed. The long tail of the internet, coupled with the evolution of our politics, has divided us as never before. Even COVID, an outside enemy that should have united us, has become a cultural and political cudgel. Ironically, our collective anger over politics may now be the only thing we have in common, even as it's devolved into trench warfare. We are divided into super clusters of like-minded people. We are so siloed that we're literally shocked when everyone doesn't think exactly like we do. In short, reality has become negotiable, and we sort ourselves accordingly. The weaponized culture wars leads to more enmity, disgust, and dehumanization of our opponents. One wonders if all the king's horses and all the king's men can ever put the Humpty Dumpty that is our political civility back together again. We're going to talk about this with my guest, Peter T. Coleman. He's a professor of psychology and education at Columbia, where he holds a joint appointment at Teachers College and at the Earth Institute. He's the author of the previous book, Making Conflict Work, and it is my pleasure to welcome Peter Coleman here to talk about his new work, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me, and and great characterization of our current state of disarray. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) One of the things that that you talk about is the attractiveness of polarization, that there's a certain appeal to it. There's a certain almost addictive quality to it. Talk about that first. Well, it's true that, um, that humans like things that are clear, right? When things become messy and, and we feel a sense of ambivalence or ambiguity about our problems or challenging threats, it makes us uncomfortable. So we like things when they're simple. And so there's something that we're, there is like moral clarity is comforting to us. So even if there is, you know, when we have clear enemies, we know what to do, we know where we stand, we know how to fight the fight. Um, it's when life gets more complicated that things are, are more difficult. And what has happened today, more and more, is that there has been an increase in addiction to outrage. Um, this is the, a recent paper came out, research study uh, on neuro, the neuroscience of this, and they found that in the brain, there are pleasure centers that light up when you experience deep outrage, very similar to what lights up when people take heroin. So there is an addictive nature to feeling that sense of outrage, um, particularly when there are so many forces that are pulling us into it and pulling us apart. And part of that outrage, it seems, has to be some desire for clarity about good and evil. And, and, and absent that clarity in the face of constant change, it becomes more disorienting. Yeah, it's true. I mean, again, um, uh, Sartre had said, uh, John Paul Sartre wrote in, in, um, in the Atlantic in 1944, he was living in Paris, occupied by the Nazis, and he said something like, uh, we were never so free as when the Nazis marched into Paris. And what he was talking about is, you know, when you have that kind of moral clarity of good and evil, 
you know where you stand. You know what you do to, to do. You know that your your whole being needs to fight the fight, and there's a feeling of empowerment and solidarity in that. Um, but there is a kind of comfort in that kind of moral clarity. But that's just not our world, right? Our world is highly complex, and there are many people on the other side that are well-intentioned, but maybe suckered into sort of sort of believing in certain things. There are many people on our side that go way too far and are way too extreme in their points of view. So, you know, it's the world is complicated um, and increasingly so. And so our when we're seduced into this overly simplistic view of us and them, um, significant problems and challenges follow. One of the things that happens in that framework that you talk about, though, is that as the world is more complicated, as complexity is greater in, in virtually every single area, that the nature of this kind of polarization and tribalism results in a kind of collapse of thinking, so that on the one hand we have greater complexity, and on the other hand we have less thought going into it. Yeah, you see this, uh, uh, the Pew Research Center uh, measures something called uh, ideological consistency. What they track is 10 different issues, you know, uh, gay rights, uh, immigration, healthcare, abortion, 10 very different issues. And what they've looked at over decades is the degree to which, you know, Republicans and or Democrats view these issues independently or the degree to which they all start to kind of become correlated, they come together, and basically you just have sort of a tribal point of view on all of these issues. And what they've seen is that within our tribes, we're really basically all buying into the same kind of dogma that our leaders proffer, and we've become further and further apart from ourselves, which means we're not paying attention to what are highly complicated issues. We're really emotionally and in some tribal way just following our leaders. How much of that grows out of fear of those complex issues? Well, I think a lot of it is is fear-based. I mean, you know, again, fear is something that's a a natural response to difference, to change, to uh, threatening um, circumstances. But fear is also something that is weaponized by politicians, sometimes even by community activists um, and by the media. Um, People recognize and realize that we... Uh, that, that fear is a major mobilizer, um, and so it helps sales. It helps people attend to your news items, and it and it helps people get elected. So, fear is definitely part of it. When things become highly complicated and hard to understand, and you start to feel out of control, you're much more susceptible to messengers that come in and say, "It's clear they're coming for you. We need to stop them and fight them." Right. It's, we become more susceptible to those kinds of voices in times like this. But, you know, politicians and corporations, frankly, understand that and they manipulate that to play us. And one of the things that, that goes hand in hand with that, or I guess feeds into that, is the fact that change today is a constant, that things are constantly changing and this sense of being out of control is almost a perpetual state. Yeah, well, certainly change is the only constant, right? It's the only thing that has always been happening is, you know, since the Big Bang, if we go back to our... Right, but it's, happen- but it's happening so much more rapidly today. It's absolutely. It's that our life today is so much more complicated, so much more complex, and the pace of change is at such a, a rate that 
it is sometimes very overwhelming to most of us. And, and when we're in that state of feeling overwhelmed, we do seek certainty and clarity and coherence, and we seek other groups to blame. Um, so you're right. This is, in some ways, it's, it's a response to modern society and the extremely high levels of complexity and, and some of the threats that come with that. You know, COVID and the and sort of globalization and the interdependence of the human species across this planet um, it was a real threat that comes out of the immense complexity of our world today. Um, it was a biological threat. We didn't have to politicize it and respond to it in more us versus them terms. In fact, we could have united as a country in order to t- tackle this external biological threat. But because of the political nature of what we were in, it was easily weaponized, even something like COVID that should have united us. And arguably, that's one of the most frightening aspects of this, that traditionally, in these kind of situations, at least historically, a common enemy kind of works as a solution. You know, Donald Rumsfeld used to say, you know, I'm not sure he was joking about it, that the solution to an intractable problem was a larger problem. And, and here we had that with COVID, and it still didn't work. All it did is weaponize the problems that were there. Yeah, in my, in my field, we call these things disaster diplomacy. And you see this when a tsunami hits or a wildfire hits a community. Then you'll have ethnic groups that are, have been really warring against one another put down their arms and help the community you know, rebuild and rescue and recover. Um, and that can change the dynamics of warring groups. But we didn't see that in America. We saw the quick weaponization of the idea of COVID, of what to do and not to do, which still plays out today. You know, you're seeing this like escalation of attacks on flight attendants on planes because they're trying to enforce mask right mandates and, and, and being attacked by, you know, by their 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 clients on the plane. So this this is a, a, a strange time where things that should unite us, because they become weaponized, um, end up dividing us further. And we see it with what would normally be our, and I, I use this word loosely, our enemies, or at least those that we have challenging issues with on the global stage, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, that those things have become weaponized as well in terms of our internal political debate. Very different than what we witnessed, say, during the Cold War. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. In the Cold War, the dominant point of view was that Russia is a threat. It's a threat to democracy. Communism is a threat. The spread of communism is a threat to democracy. And that did mobilize us. World War II mobilized us, right? So these threats from external enemies um, can really unite. But even today, views around Russia and Putin and his role in interfering with the elections, they all become, again, relative to your group's point of view. People see that either as an attempt to take down the reputation of Donald Trump um, or as, you know, the real politic of what's really happening in the world. And, And so when that kind of threat is framed in radically different ways. It moves people in different directions. Is there something to be understood by the idea, ironic as it is, that the destabilization of our politics today is really the only thing we have in common? 
Well, it's both the only thing we have in common, but it's also this tremendous opportunity. So uh, one of the things I study are long-term difficult conflicts within societies, divided societies that for 30, 40, 50, 70 years have had these intense internal divisions or are at wars with other nations. And what you see is the vast majority of those, somewhere between 75 and 90% of those end and there is a reconciliation and a pivoting towards peacefulness, usually after some major political shock, some destabilizing factor. It's usually a, you know, a coup attempt or an assassination, political assassination, something that really destabilizes a society. And it causes people, you know, citizens to just rethink what's important to them. What are their priorities? Who do they want to be leading them? And those kind of, that kind of questioning and, and, and reorientation of your values and priorities can lead to the end of conflicts like this. So, you know, ironically, this kind of destabilizing period that we're coming out of right now in terms of uh, COVID and the economic downturn and the intense uh, awareness of racial injustice happening in this country, we have these multiple ways of destabilizing factors that are happening and that can be a good thing if this is a time when people reset, reflect, start to take some responsibility for their contributions to some of these problems and pivot. In that sense, though, it seems that the only solution becomes time and generational change. Well, not necessarily. You're absolutely right that these fixing this kind of pattern of polarization, which is, you know, a 50 plus year pattern is this is a long term trajectory. It's not just Trump. Trump, you know, used the polarization of the country to divide and and threw fire on it and, and intensified it. But this has been happening for decades in our country. And this is not there are not quick, slow, you know, immediate fixes to this. Um, there are a lot of things that we can do. I mean, that's the kind of good news of complex problems like this is that there are many forces that are uh, driving the problems, but many of those uh, offer opportunities for changes that we can make in our lives and our families and our communities that can bring the, bring the temperature down and move us in a different direction. So that's one of the promising things at this time is that, you know, you can make change, but it does take time. It does take perseverance and patience. And I guess the question is, one of the things that, that people used to argue, you know, and this goes back maybe five or six years, to your point, is that the change could happen on a smaller community level and that, that, that the divisions that we see don't necessarily filter down to issues of how to pick up the garbage and how to pave the streets. But in fact, the pendulum has gone the other way. Those things have become weaponized now in local communities. And in fact, even the efforts to bring people together on, on a community level don't seem to be able to scale. Yeah, I think that's true in some places. Uh, you know, there is a, a more of a connection these days to national politics and the rhetoric and hostility there and it trickling down into local politics. Um, it, and, and that's not always the case and hasn't always been the case. In fact, America, America's long been a place where, you know, there's been a lot of functional local govern, governments that have been our savior, you know. Um, but there is more of a connection between the two. And again, part of that is the pervasiveness of 
news reporting, entertainmentization of media, internet, you know, uh, platforms that are part, part, part of the separation. So we're getting, there's much more feedback now between the national conversation and local conversations. But I will say that, you know, there are, we just did a study of, um, there, there was a study done in 2019 by a group called PredictWise that looked at what they call affective polarization, how much Republicans hate de Democrats and vice versa um, in, in the 3,000 different counties in our country. And the, the sort of interesting news or good news is that there's a big difference. Some counties are actually places where people are much more tolerant and accepting of people on the other side of the aisle. Um, some are very polarized and, um, and, and, and heated, but there are a large uh, group of counties really spread across the country where people are much more tolerant of one another. And the key to these countries or to these, sorry, to these counties is that they have much more mixing. They have, you know, uh, sports teams and workplaces and places of worship. And even in, within marriages, you see more mixed Republican Democratic marriages in these counties. So these are places where people grow up together with members, with people who have different political views from them. They talk to them, they agree to disagree, and they move on with their life and it doesn't become all consuming. And so that's really the, one of the keys is that, you know, local communities really need to recognize that these days, because there's so much pressure coming top down from the media and from our political leaders to split us apart, we need to do everything we can on a local level to try to mitigate that. Of course, the pressure from the bottom up in local communities that, that creates more polarization with respect to zoning and siloing is equally strong. It's true. It's true. And activists, you know, community community activists oftentimes in order to mobilize their bases, in order to mobilize their, you know, in service of their cause, they will oftentimes oversimplify and polarize issues. It's it's, you know, what people recognize is a major motivator of human beings and will help mobilize and achieve their goals. So that kind of strategy comes bottom up and top down. And again, to some degree, that's fine, right? Political polarization to some degree is necessary. It's useful. It helps us. It helps. It can be a healthy check and balance within communities to move them forward in more progressive directions while also holding on to a sense of stability and history and integrity, right? You need both in, in, in communities, but we have gotten to a place where the guardrails have, are off and we really need to figure out how to bring those back and particularly, how do we amplify the voices of moderates, of people within the middle? Because the extremes are controlling the conversation. There's a study that came out that said 80% um, of the content on Twitter comes from 10% of the users. So there's sm these small groups are controlling the story and they're controlling our understanding of what's happening in our own communities. And we need to be able to take that back. There is, as an overlay to this, though, what, what you talk about is a kind of psychosis that, that overtakes us where there are really different parallel realities. Well, when, when you have, you know, media industries that are really about creating narratives that are opposing narratives, and when you have internet platforms that sort us into these very different realms, so we start to listen only to people that have, share the same beliefs and attitudes that we do. And 
you see even physically people moving away from each other. They've been tracking sort, you know, uh, geographic sorting, not just rural, urban, but even in urban areas, you see very clear delineations of neighborhoods that are red versus blue in you know, New York City and Chicago and L.A. So we're, we're definitely physically moving away from each other and politically moving away from each other um, on the Internet through the media we consume and, and, you know, at a physical level. And that does create these conditions where we just, it creates what we call autistic hostility, where our beliefs and ruminations about the other side are not informed at all by contact with them because we don't have contact with them. And of course, we even see it in things as as frivolous, but as consistent as things like dating apps that, that make political distinctions. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, political or partisan affiliation is affecting only almost every aspect of our life these days, right? Who we date, who we marry, who we hire, who we hang out with, who we're willing to ride the elevator with, you know, it really becomes ridiculous to some point. And it is what I call a form of American psychosis, where we you know, are living in these parallel realities that are fed by all of these factors and they're opposing realities. And that's a first order problem. It's a problem because it not only is, makes us sick and our family sick and helps, you know, can contribute to divides in our communities and our you know, workplaces, um, but it, it disables or impairs our capacity as a country to come together enough to take on even things that we agree about, right? 90% of Americans support background checks for uh, new gun purchases. So why can't we pass that? Well, because it's part of the package that is weaponized against them and, you know, in support of our side. What do we have to do then for the fever to break? We can see the event horizon. How do we get there? So the book I wrote, The Way Out, is really focused toward um, the middle. It's focused toward, um, you know, there's a study that came out by a group called More in Common, which said that somewhere between 86 and 93 percent of what they call the exhausted middle majority, those of us, you know, that are, are not in the extremes, you know, controlling Twitter, but are in the middle, are exhausted, fed up, don't want this anymore, see Washington as dysfunctional and, we, and the media dysfunctional, and we really want a, another way out. And so what I've done is summarize the science. Uh, so I'm a researcher, and that's primarily what I do. And so I've conducted a lot of this research myself, or I've gone deep into other areas of research of what people can do if they feel that they're trapped in this quagmire of polarization and the experience of contempt for the other. And I've kind of boiled it down to a set of what I call new rules. These are like, if you feel trapped, triggered by somebody, what are the kind of slight adjustments that you can make in your life that might help you start to pivot in a different direction? Do things have to get worse before they get better? To continue the physics metaphor, I mean, do we have to reach some kind of singularity? Well, you know, things are pretty bad. <laughs> you know, if you look at the trends on, on the feelings of hate and contempt from each other, the oversimplistic views of each other, the moving physically away from each other, and then you start to look at the rise in, you know, hate groups, hate crimes, and political violence culminating in things like January 6th, that's pretty bad. Um, and again, particularly on top of all of these other destabilizing factors that have happened to us, we are, in, to some degree, hopefully hitting bottom. 
as a nation. And so this is an opportune time for us to pause, reflect, take responsibility for our own lives and the lives of our families and communities and start to make a shift. Um, yes, it could get worse. And, and the fact is it's probably likely to get worse, at least the violence um, is likely to continue or spike. Um, hopefully we don't need that. Um, we've seen other nations, you know, Costa Rica is a great parable because Costa Rica had to come out of a violent, bloody civil war in 1948 and say, okay, that's it. Enough of this. We're disbanding our military. We're investing in, you know, education and healthcare and the ecology, and we're growing a new society. And it took them 50 years, but they did intentionally grow a highly peaceful society that's much more tolerant and accepting than us. And yet you'd think January 6th, as you mentioned, might have at least move the needle a little bit in this direction, but it really hasn't. If anything, it's it's perpetuated the problem. Well, that's what we get from the extremes and from our political leaders. We get that it really hasn't had an impact. But I do think in the middle, it has mobilized people. It has peeled off people from viewing these as sort of benign, you know, politics as usual, and really started to see, you know, we're at a tipping point. This is something very different. So yes, I think to some degree, certainly the formal political positions of our leaders hasn't seemed to change much, at least not for long. Um, but I do think citizens are waking, waking up to the, the perils of these kinds of forces um, and that we all need to do something about them. And that starts with, uh, with us in our life. And so I, and I guess the overriding question at the end becomes whether or not the political system that we have has within it the resiliency or, or, or the operative ability to make the changes necessary, or does the whole system have to be rebuilt? Well, I do think that there are some really promising things happening across the country in communities and in Washington, D.C. There's a, there's a little-known uh, committee in Congress called the Select Committee for the Modernization of Congress, and it's chaired by uh, a Democrat, named Derek Kilmer from Washington and a Republican, it's co-chaired, and a Republican named William Timmons from South Carolina. And it's a completely bipartisan uh, committee, six and six. Um, they share the budget. And what their task has been, they were given a one-year mandate to basically try to repair the divisions within Congress. And they were so effective after a year, they put out 98 different recommendations that the freshman uh, class of Congress and others said they need to continue the, to work, give them another couple of years to do this work. And they're, what they're doing isn't rocket science. It's just looking at you know what I talked about earlier, which is the need for groups to mix. So one of the things they propose is the first day of Congress, the freshmen are, are come to D.C. and uh, they're put on a you know a, a Democrat bus and a Republican bus, and then they drive off in different directions. You know? <laughs> so their first recommendation was, "Don't do that. Why are you doing that? You know, like why are you setting them up for war from the from the onset? Why can't you begin with conversations about how do we you know how do we help our country together?" And so they've come up with many of these things. And, and again, this is something that's not well known, but they're, they're a, a smart, effective, strategic group that's working well within the belly of the beast, within Congress, um, you know, where January 6th happened. Um, and so I think that's promising. But it's also important to know that, you know, there's a group 
uh, at Princeton called the Bridging Divides Initiative, and they map across the country all of the bridge building groups and organizations that are currently working to help, you know, basically reduce toxic vilification of the other and bring people together. And they do this, you know, informed by science. They do it respectfully and carefully. And there are to date something like 7,000 of these groups. If you go to Bridging Divides Initiative uh, Princeton, you'll see the map. You can click on it and find in your community where these groups are. So there are promising things that are happening across the country, bottom up and top down. And the more that we're aware of those, the more a sense of hope that we can glean. Peter Coleman, his book is The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Peter, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, for giving the message uh, airtime. Well, thank you.